Welcome back to the Why Are We Like This podcast. Uh, I am uh, your host for the day, uh, Gerald Doherty. Um, joining you as always from New York. Uh, I'm joined today by my co-host from Miami, Florida, Tomas Kennedy. Tomas, how are you? You know, uh, as usual, trying to survive Florida, but uh, <laughs> happy to be with some New Yorkers trying to get into that empire state of mind. There you go. Doing well, despite it all. Um, yep. So... If you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably um, very down uh, because of the atrophy of uh, your state party, um, you know, especially with the demographics being what they are. That leads to a lot of political nightmarishness. But here we have an example of the atrophy of a Democratic Party and the ruling class within it, leading to maybe one of the more transformational pieces of legislation I've ever seen uh, pass uh, in New York State legislature. Um, to discuss this uh, and more, um, we're joined by two writers for The Guardian, uh, Darna Noor. How are you? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Uh, doing all right. And we're joined by Aliyah Utiova. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, good to be here. Nice to meet you. Um, so, Aliyah, um, you wrote very recently um, for The Guardian um, after the passage of the Build Public Renewables Act, um, which was a green energy production and environmental justice uh, bill that was uh, passed as part of the larger annual budget in New York State. Um, can you walk us through some of the nuts and bolts of what is in the legislation? And then we'll break down uh, the campaign behind uh, uh, the bill and how it, how it ultimately got passed yeah. over the course of four years of organizing. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, as you said, uh, literally a couple days ago on May 3rd, uh, New York State has passed what's being called one of the most transformational uh, climate and green jobs bills in the nation. Uh, Build Public Renewables Act has been uh, four years in the making uh, from advocacy groups like Public Power New York, and it's a, a f- legislation that would scale up the state's uh, renewable energy production, and it comes as one of the major steps towards moving utilities out of private um, hands to publicly owned. Um, You mentioned that it's going to be in the state's new budget, and basically what it would do is allow Public Power New York, um, sorry, New York Public Authority, Uh, which is the state's public municipal utility to uh, create its own energy that is renewable, to run its renewable energy and also sell parts of it by 2030. Now, they would be able to sell it on the market, basically, or buy it, like um, produce it themselves and sell it on the market. Now, just speaking in sex, I I was a very, you know, a low-level volunteer on the campaign, this was a bill that faced very heavy resistance from the natural gas industry, um, from private green energy companies that um, were making the market case that, which was funny was that now that that's passed, a lot of people who are, you know, were against it are now taking credit for it saying, oh, this, the, see, New York is such a champion of climate justice and, you know, environmental progress and what have you. However, um, a lot of the companies that, you know, donate to them, uh, that they take money from, um, we're making the case last year after its defeat. Um, this was a bill that, uh, I'll just say assembly speaker, Carl Heasty, after it passed with, I think 70 votes in the New York state Senate assembly speaker, Carl Heasty basically had the bill killed, not even brought up for a vote, even though the expectation was it would have passed because it would have put, 
Kathy Hochul um, in, you know, a, a, in, a, in their mind, a precarious electoral bind ahead of a midterm election. And they didn't want to deal with the, you know, any political consequences. Um, the campaign, which was uh, Public Power New York, basically reloaded um, and made another push this year successfully to get it in the bill. Um, so, Donna, I know you've written about this uh, a few years ago. Can you talk about the development of this campaign um, since 2019 um, around working class issues, marrying, I guess, working class issues on the ground um, and uh, the environmental injustices that you know people, not just in New York State, but all over the country are facing um, and how they very, you know, successfully last year, unsuccessfully this year, I tried to you know, kill this transformational piece of legislation. Yeah, totally. Um, I think you're, you're sort of hitting on something really important here. Uh, this bill is being called like a state level Green New Deal. Um, and I think that part of the reason why is because, as you're saying, it really makes it clear what there is to gain from both harnessing the power of the public sector and also um, using that power to transition away from um, fossil based energy to renewable energy. And that's really crucial, you know, not just bringing more renewable energy online, not just bringing more competing energy online, but also winding down some of the existing um, gas-fired, uh, what are called peaker plants. So these plants essentially that um, that the New York Power Authority owns um, and that run like at peak times um, of demand. So like on the hottest days of the year, or the coldest days of the year, when everyone's running their air conditioners or everyone's inside um, heating their homes, um, these are gas plants that get turned on um, and then turned off again, essentially, uh, when that peak demand is not uh, is not uh, you know happening when when it's not necessary to have that extra power. Um, and the the bill actually kind of like mandates that um, that that uh, gas fired power gets wind gets wound down, which is I think really important. Um, and you know I, I want to say that like I think this the organizing for this bill did begin. Uh, a couple of years ago, I first reported on, um, you know, the sort of potential for this bill back in 2021 when I was at Gizmodo's climate site, Earther. Um, but really, I think that the kernel is like it came even earlier um, because a couple of years before that, New York enshrined what was called the most ambitious statewide climate targets in the country um, in this legislation called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. So that basically required the state to completely decarbonize um, the grid by 2040 to cut emissions from all sectors by 85% within the following decades. But there wasn't really much of a funding plan to actually get there. Um, and without that funding plan, basically private capital just like failed to meet um, those right. standards. Like there just wasn't a lot done. Um, this The city kind of, or the state kind of dragged its feet um, and so did the private sector. Um, and so this bill, I think, and the organizing here um, really sort of, uh, you know, can does, I guess, what the private sector failed to do, um, you know, by, again, harnessing the power of the public sector, by using these mandates instead of like the sort of incentives that we see in something like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and by also tying this need for renewable power to the need for affordable power, um, I think it really makes the case for like, you know, why uh, the state needed to step in. Now, is there, um, Ali, in your, in your reporting, um, is, is there a reason why this, because again, the whole pitch in 2019 um, was that market forces alone um, would be able to carry the day. Um, and I understand that the Inflation Reduction Act um, passed uh, in 2022, um, allowed for federal subsidies that made a lot of uh, the green energy, um, it made it more feasible that, you know, this is something that could be 
managed in, in the short term. Um, but can you speak to the need for uh, the New York Power Authority um, to step in in the first place, just in order to meet the, you know, I don't want to call it like lip service, but like the the the, the rhetorical benchmarks of uh, New York State's you know official climate, uh, I guess, goals and targets, basically. Yeah, well, I think it's because NIPA is the best bet we got. Um, it's the largest state public utility in the country, meaning uh, it's it's uh, energy costs cheaper. Um, NIPA supplies New York City public housing. It supplies municipal buildings, government buildings. It supplies the city's zoos and museums and schools and public hospitals. And it also does so uh, cheaply. And you also have to remember that NIPA's energy already comes from renewables. More than 80% of it is hydropower. And the remaining are the six peaker plants that Darna was pointing to. And um, with this, uh, it's only going to, it's only projected to get bigger. And it's really going to make a, you know, a blueprint for other states to follow. Now, I, I know the campaign is, is now trying to make a push, you know, more broadly, um, you know, to try to, you know, make, I guess, more of a nationwide concerted effort around the Green New Deal at the federal level. Um, what, I guess, how could, just to ask a follow-up question on that, how could a state level bill like Build Public Renewables Act, other than, you know, the headline itself that it passed, the, the fact that it passed, serve as a blueprint for other states? Um, I believe, you know, we were talking before that you already have a lot of leadership on green energy coming ironically from a lot of red states who have actual market incentives to make use of the land available to them. How could the state level campaign, I guess, serve as a springboard for a larger uh, Green New Deal push um, throughout the country? Well, so I was actually I was going to, um, you know, cite something that you actually have, have kind of brought up a lot um, and that I've also reported on, which is that I think people think about public power um, and if they're not really familiar with like how the grid is owned and controlled, they think it's this really new idea, not realizing that like, you know, public power has existed for a long, long time in this country. Um, you know, it was obviously like a, a sort of linchpin of um, the, the New Deal in the 30s. Um, there's even a state, Nebraska, um, where the electric electricity sector um, consists entirely of public power districts. Um, and I think that really showing that like, those um, public power authorities and districts have can have teeth um, and can lead the way on the renewable energy transition um, it is really important, you know, just kind of showing that it's possible for um, the state to lead rather than kind of only um, rather than, than a state or, you know, the federal government only sort of providing incentives for um, the private sector to sort of take the lead and, and move at their own pace as long as those incentives are available. Um, I mean, this is kind of like a wonky aspect of this, but I think it's important. Gerald, you mentioned that the Inflation Reduction Act, um, it made uh, in some ways made it easier to pass something like um, the Bill Public Renewables Act. And, and the reason why is because um, essentially it made it possible for publicly owned entities to take advantage of the tax credits that uh, tax credits, sorry, that actually make it um, like affordable for an entity to bring renewable power online. Um, so tax credits that make it, for instance, more affordable to like build out wind farms um, or bring on more rooftop solar. 
um, and the like. So, you know, the fact that essentially New York took advantage of this and is using what's called direct pay um, to actually build out more public power, I think is a really encouraging sign. Um, and I think that we might see more sort of legislation like this cropping up around the country. Um, at the same time, there's also like pushes in various places, uh, Maine, uh, Massachusetts, where there's a campaign called Take Back the Grid. There's a bunch of other places that are sort of working to bring the grid under public control. And I think that legislation like this can sort of make the argument to folks who are really concerned not only about ownership, but also about the sort of climate stakes of energy. Um, it can help make the argument that like public power is actually a positive for um, for the renewable energy transition. Um, because, you know, right now, I think that so often we hear about like uh, these like privately owned companies who are just doing um, altruistically, they just happen to be like really working really hard right. to, um, you know, transition away from coal and oil and gas. Uh, and I think that this model where there's not like a profit motive where you have to um, you know, kind of scrape some off the top for CEOs and shareholders and stuff um, provides a really useful alternative. You know, I'm looking at this, you know, and from my like little viewpoint in, in, you know, Florida, it just seems like unthinkable that we would do this in our state uh, where, you know, like spe like special interest groups dominate the process so heavily. I mean, they do so in New York, but just from our, my vantage point, it's it's unfeasible. Right. Um, I mean, you know, like our, 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 pub our, our utility companies are like straight up like, you know, funding fake candidates in our elect in, in our in our state senate election so they can control the public service commission and not be regulated so I, i'm just like in awe that this something like this would pass and you know gerald um referenced that the the new york state democratic party in the past has killed this so i guess how how what changed like how did they manage to get this through and like what was you know how how did they get those same lawmakers that in the past voted against it to vote for it, you know, what gave them the courage to stand up against the special interest groups? Yeah, just fascinating. <laughs> I think that uh, there's a couple reasons. One that st stands out to me is uh, winter, you know, February uh, 2022 and 2020 to when the war in Ukraine started, when the gas prices just hiked up um, tremendously. And because of the um, price volatility, uh, lack of reliability, and also the, the Texas winter storm that disrupted fossil fuel production, all of this created this situation where um, your bill just went up uh, 25%. Some have had uh, hundreds of dollars of utilities to pay. Uh, and it was a, such a sudden spike that I, as a ratepayer myself, um, who has Con Edison, have gotten, you know, emails from them like, we know the prices went up. Uh, please don't worry. Here's what you can do. And what we could do as ratepayers rate was not that much. And it just showed that, you know, when stuff like this happens, it's the ratepayers who take the brunt of it. And when you have a model when utilities are not owned by investors when profits do not go to shareholders and instead are reinvested in the operations like nipus is you have something that is you know reliable and uh, it's been around for 
over 90 years. I mean, Darna mentioned the New Deal. Uh, New York Public Authority is a brainchild of the then governor, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. So um, it just think, I just think that people were not oblivious to the volatility of gas prices and that we're ready for something that's more reliable. And also, um, I, if I remember correctly, in the um, in the I guess inaugural um, I guess days of the campaign, there had been a massive heat wave in in 2019, um, yeah. uh, and I believe that Con Edison um, was planning a, a rate hike uh, even then, and there were a lot of protests outside the the shareholders meeting. So I think it, it kind of concretized in people's heads and made real, made material that I'm being price gouged by people. At, due to market forces, and they are based, they're basically like like gouging me at you know you know when it comes time to pay my energy bill, just so that they can pay out their shareholders, um, and it's only because they have essentially a, you know the, the status of a private utility company that they're able to get away with it. Um, and just just out of sheer curiosity, what what were the the main thrust of the arguments that you know like the special interest groups and the status quo? We're employing, you know, to try to defeat this. I think that, you know, there was this one group called Independent Power Producers of New York, and their argument was that this was unfair competition. Um, and a lot of it was also market dogmatism. Like it was just straight up. If you read that, like I, I have a few. Um, what is it? Uh, quotes. Um, but it's that, you know, they all become the same boilerplate. The free market will be able to innovate and provide more quickly and more efficiently the green energy that we need to. So it is, is nothing other than or you private market. Sorry. No, I mean, I mean, there's three there's three interest groups, one re representing natural gas, one representing solar and one representing uh, just some amalgam of, of you know, green energy companies. Uh, but they all tried it at the same line, which is the natural gas ones were like this would hurt our industry and you're going to put, you know, um, natural gas workers out of jobs, all the rest, uh, ignoring the the just transition um, that's provided for in the bill for people who work in, in you know, uh, fossil fuel industries. But it really was just market woo woo. Like it really was just the public sector can't handle this because we're handling it. But if, but to every, you know, to Aaliyah's point, if you're the ones handling it, and my and my rates are going way up because of a war in Ukraine in the winter time, and my rates are also going way up during a heat wave in the summertime, how well are you guys actually handling this? You know, is there another way to generate power and have the benefits um, from that generation of power accrue to the people who actually? pay for it. And that's why, you know, I was saying earlier, I think this is the first environmental campaign that also spoke to the material needs of, mm -hmm. you know, the people on the ground. I, you know, the climate is a real material issue, but I think it, it's easy to, um, I guess, make it abstract um, or make it a moral case. And this was a real, they basically married the two of the environmental justice case while also hitting the bread and butter pocketbook issues of how this could pl play a positive role in your life tomorrow, basically. And crucially, I think part of that, too, was the, the labor protections. I mean, um, yeah. there, was, there was a period where um, governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, essentially like introduced her own version of the Bill of Public Renewables yeah. Act 
um, that campaigners really said was like gutting um, the bill. And part of the reason is because it really lacked um, the labor protections that the original bill included. Like the 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 big PRA or the Bill Public Renewables Act um, basically set out to ensure that the jobs created would be good jobs. Um, and, you know, had these really kind of strong labor protections in place. Um, and I think that it really speaks to like the, um, you know, the kind of um, populist nature, I guess, of the movement that um, that was something that campaigners really weren't willing to budge on. You know, when um, when it was proposed that uh, the remo- renewables policy could um, be fit into the bill, but that the mandates could go away and that the labor protections could go away. Campaigners really, really fought against that. I think, again, showing um, you know, the ways that these kinds of policies can actually immediately be beneficial to people's lives. Um, and, you know, not inside and not kind of, um, fall into that, like labor versus environmental protection argument that the fossil fuel industry has pushed for so long. And that like, you know, many sort of climate, um, delayists and, and sort of skeptics, um, often rely on this idea that like, either we can have good climate policy or we can have good jobs. And also, you know, there are, like to Tomas's point, there are also political um, obstacles to, to face it rather than just the industry ones. Um, you know, as Tomas mentioned in, in Florida, the, the utility company is basically like if Tony Soprano wore a lanyard. I mean, they really are like the like the most <laughs> evil nerds you're ever going to meet. Um, so I understand that the obstacles in one place might not be the obstacles in another. Um, but I, 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 I also want to bring up the elephant in the room, which is. Um, this basically had to get past Carl Heasty and failed to do so last year, successfully did so this year through its, its provision in the annual budget, not as its own piece of legislation. But the reason that I think it got passed at all is because Andrew Cuomo isn't here to dictate terms to the New York state democratic party. And I just, my conjecture, and I'll I'll offer it up to the floor if you guys, you know, want to to off on it. In the past, if Andrew Cuomo didn't want something in the budget, it didn't get in the budget. There was no forcing his hand. There was no, you know, we'll make the we'll make the case for what he can do for the people. Um, there would have been no late night eleventh hour killing it in the crib, in you know, summer of last year. It would have just been if it didn't get into my budget, it's not getting passed in my budget. Um, so I wanted to ask also if you guys you know can talk on um, not just the interest groups but also the political vacuum. Um, I guess, left uh, by Andrew Cuomo's resignation that, that might have made this possible. It might have made organizers less intimidated, you know, when they were defeated last year um, to say, well, we're going to reload and we're going to take another another bite at the apple at this because we're not we're not nearly as, um, you know, Carl Heasey's not putting the same fear of God in us as, you know, Cuomo would have maybe just eight years ago. I mean, I got to say, I'm like not an expert on New York politics, Um but like the fact of this getting put into the budget at the last minute, I think is itself pretty interesting and the signal and signals a sort of shift um, because often, and like in this case as well, that sort of like what, what's called the big ugly, that like last sort of omnibus bill, the like the big budget bill um, that can kind of get up for, go up for a vote um, in uh, state Congress, like, you know, all together where it like kind of fits a bunch of different stuff in. Um, often that's a way to sneak in like the super right wing um, reforms that are being proposed. Um, you know, in this case, there were things like, um, you know, education policy and, um, and and prison policies that that lots of progressives um, 
uh, elected progressives in New York were really against. And in fact, like on those grounds, there were progressives who opposed this bill, despite the inclusion of something like the Bill Public Renewables Act in it. Um, and so, you know, the I, the very idea of like that being how this uh, this comes to pass in New York State is pretty interesting to me. Um, and I think is pretty, pretty different from how it happens in a lot of other states. Um, I mean, I, again, am like no expert on Cuomo's uh, reign, but I do think that there's been a lot of um, a lot of changes in New York state policy and a, a kind of shift towards, um, I don't know, like a belief in the state of democracy again in some yeah. ways. Um, and that feels not unrelated from, my, from what I've heard campaigners say, I guess. Um, I do want to add that uh, there is a part of the bill that, uh, was scrapped and didn't make it, which was, um, so NIPA is made up of uh, a board that is a board of trustees that is appointed by a governor and uh, Cuomo appointed, uh, Cuomo appointed um, board of trust board members are still there actually. And, um, you know, the part of the bill that wanted to expand uh appointment to include labor groups, environmental justice groups, that did not make the final provision. And that's something that um, advocates, um, you know, are kind of sour about as rightfully so. I just wanted to like, I, I guess, make the comparison because obviously the Florida and New York pipeline is real, mm. but it, it's interesting, right? Because both Florida and New York are places with you know, very weak um, state democratic parties, right? I mean, New York obviously has like a, a democratic machine and like like a strong sure. union machine. So n not comparable, but, uh, you know, the state party has in recent years has become really disorganized and really chaotic and, yeah. you know, they, they're, they're not performing. Uh, just, I mean, yeah, just interesting that both, like, what can what can because in Florida, right, we have a weak state Democratic Party and then super minorities of Democrats in the legislature. Right. And we have a couple right. of really good advocates, but the majority of Democrats in the legislature are, quite frankly, pay to play and really awful. But in New York, you have like a really weak state Democratic Party, at, at least at the moment, but then a, a strong Democratic legislature. So kind of what happened when you like the machine kind of broke down you get like a good yeah. you know grassroots momentum with like a a you know proper circumstance and context in terms of like the war in ukraine and like the heat wave right the stuff that created like the the grassroots push for that to happen just super interesting uh you know how like both dynamics played out uh in different states, but in New York, it resulted in some really good legislature because there wasn't that political machine to stop it and the special interest to like, you know, take advantage of it. I mean, without like, without diminishing that, I do want to note that like, obviously the industry did try, um, but but also like, you know, there, there were, I think it was an active like fight and an uphill battle in some cases for campaigners to get unions specifically on their side with this legislation. Like there was a time when um, some of the unions that are in the building trades, like the um, New York State Conference of uh, Operating Engineers, um, also like the AFL-CIO of, of New York, which is huge, um, actively opposed this legislation. And it took a lot of active organizing for campaigners to 
fight the gas industry sort of, um, you know, like counter narrative here and also to get unions on their side. Um, and I mean, I think obviously part of that just speaks to like a long history of um, like, I don't know, uh, uh, misinformation. I don't think it's too much to say um, about uh, what renewable energy means for labor and what it means for working people. But part of it is like just that it's like organizing is hard, um, even like in any scenario, it's hard and it takes a lot of time. Um, and so like, I, I don't want to sort of diminish the idea that like um, it's, it's, you know, obviously there are conditions in New York that made this especially possible. Um, but also I think that the challenges um, really did like call into question whether or not something like this could pass, even in like what's essentially a one party state like New York. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's in some ways like, yeah, it's an easier place for this kind of legislation to pass. In other ways, um, I think that the assumption that the Democratic Party is like already sort of doing the right things can be a uh, an impediment um, to like to campaigns like this, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I want to add Donna's point about organizing. You have to remember that this has been four years in the making. And even before that, there's been grassroots environmental justice organizing to remove peaker plants, the same ones that this totally. bill would ensure get removed. The six of them, all of them are in New York's um, uh, borough of Queens, um, South Bronx. It's also in the neighborhood of Harlem in in. Uh, in Manhattan, all of them have um, a predominantly people of color population. And also uh, South Bronx is if if one of the most, if not the most uh, uh, concentrated place for asthma related childhood uh, uh, diseases in the country. And it's by no accident that these peaker plants that em emit nitrogen oxide and carbon dioxide are there. It's because these neighborhoods were deemed, um, you know, uh, undesirable. And also those are the same neighborhoods that are close to the highways. They're close to other uh, power plants. And people have been campaigning consistently and asking for change. And, um, you know, passing of this bill is also owed majorly owed for for these um, campaigners yeah it's a, it's a great point like that organizing is also a huge part of this campaign um in in many ways like it began long before um bpra was even like a, a term on people's minds sure yeah no and and i i agree with that completely you know and uh you know gerald we, before you all jumped on we were talking about it that you know it's so much it's so important to have grassroots movements yeah. that can push, you know, like these yeah. politicians to do the right thing. I'm honestly shocked that it passed at all, considering how historically pay to play New York yeah. Democrats are. And it, it reminds me of, you know, because I'm involved with the Florida Democratic Party. Um, and I remember in 2021, when the Biden administration uh, came into power, they were going to reopen a for profit detention center in Homestead. Uh, that was initially opened by Obama, closed. Then the Trump administration reopened, closed, and then they're going to open it again. Ultimately, they did not open it, thankfully. 
But I remember we were trying to get the Florida. We, we got a bunch of the county parties to issue statements against it. And then we were trying to get the Florida Democratic Party to issue a statement against it. And then the, basically, I remember talking to like a DNC leader in the in the state executive committee of the party. And they told me, you know, the thing is that our jobs as the Florida Democratic Party is to elect Democrats. It's not to push issues or values. And I was like, wow, that's horrible. <laughs> I completely disagree <laughs> with that. But that, <laughs> but that is the yeah. mindset of you know, told it to me like that. And I was like, that's the mindset of a lot of these people, right? So uh, they're just, it, it's powers, power for power's sake. And a lot of people don't see this as like evil or necessarily bad. They just like rationalize it in a lot of different ways and play mental gymnastics with it. So yeah, like having that grassroots organizing is so important. And also like, it's super interesting that you were mentioning the stuff around the unions, Darna, because you know, I come from immigration uh, advocacy world and like, I mean, it's so much better nowadays, but like historically, like, especially like 20 decades ago, even like even 10 years ago, like unions were not immigration friendly, especially a lot of like the trade unions and the unions in the a AFL-CIO ecosystem, because, you know, we're very pro-union in this podcast, but a lot of them do play this like dance with like, you know, capitalist forces that can end up being pretty reactionary so yeah i could imagine a lot of like the trade unions being super against this and yeah i could imagine it would be like a huge effort to get them to support it there are there are critics of the bill too um of the legislation i guess um that sort of like criticize the bill on the grounds that it didn't put unions at the center um there were some sort of allegations of like top-down type organizing that was like very um, like NGOs essentially like trying to control what the unions were doing. I'm not like as a journalist, I'm not going to weigh in on like the validity of that. Sure. Um, but I guess just to say that, like, obviously not, uh, uh, unions are not a monolith. Um, obviously, you know, there are, there are many different kinds of working people. There are often big differences between union leadership and union rank and file. Like there's, uh, organized labor can be all over the board. Um, and I think, like, I personally think that the climate movement kind of need. I don't think that there's really a, a path forward that leaves the unions completely behind, but there are many different um, sort of uh, competing schools of thought on, like, how the relationship should work. Um, I don't know. Just to, to say, I guess, that, like, for sure, like, there are, it's a, it can totally be a challenge, and it's one that I think that, like, uh, the left and the environmental movement and like climate organizers and, um, you know, environmental justice organizers at large are taking on in many, many different ways and have many different sort of responses to. Yeah. Um, I do want to add that um, as a result of this uh, pretty strong uh, union language and labor language that made it to BPRA, um, candidates who have lost employment in the oil and gas sector will be prioritized for newly created renewable positions, which is pretty, uh, pretty big. And also um, they, the starting 2024, uh, NIPA will be authorized to um, dedicate up to 25 million each year towards worker training programs uh, so that these uh, union workers can re-enter uh, renewable energy sector. 
All right. Um, I know uh, we're reaching, um, you know, time. Uh, I want to thank uh, Aaliyah and Darna um, for joining us. Um, if you both just want to weigh in on, you know, your own thoughts, where you think things go from here, um, and also where people can find you um, on social media, if you'd like to get a follow out of this, uh, by all means, plug yourselves. Um, weighing in on where things go from here. Um, I don't, I mean, I, this is one, I think, um, like kind of hugely hailed piece of legislation in one state. Um, I think an important piece of legislation, I think an important state, um, I think one that could serve as a model. Um, but obviously there's a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that um, the energy transition happens at all and happens in a just way and happens quickly. Um, and so, I don't know, I think it just like to, to be determined, um, where the movement in New York goes from here, I'll also be closely watching to see if other states sort of take the lead from here, um, especially when it comes to um, sort of harnessing, again, the power of public um, power to lead the way in the transition. Um, so that's that's what I'll be looking out for. Um, and you can find me on the internet. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Dharna Noor, D-H-A-R-N-A, N-O-O-R, um, and you can find my uh, journalism at The Guardian US, where I'm very excited that I just started. Um, I want to echo everything that Darna said, and especially about the future of public power. Public power has existed in the United States for decades, and every state, almost every state, except for Hawaii, has uh, public power. Um, Nebraska, fun fact, is entirely supplied by public power. And I think um, this is a huge win for, you know, ramping up renewable energy production for the state and also hopefully for the country. And you can find my work also at The Guardian US. Very good. All right, Aliyah and Darna, thank you so much. Um, we'll, we'll, I guess hopefully see you again soon, hopefully with more good news on future wins. Thanks so much. Yeah, we need it. Thank you. Thank you.